Christian living in our church. Let's open up our Bibles to uh, a new book, starting a new series today, guys, in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 7. I believe Pastor Paul's going to explain what this series is about. 1 Timothy. Got my real Bible again, just in case I read the wrong passage. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 to 7. I'm reading from the ESV version. Uh, please follow along. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may uh, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Amen. Thanks, Rita. And good morning. Uh, it's good to see everyone. I don't know about you. Um, I don't know if it's the weather. I just feel a little happier today. It's a little warmer in this room. All of that stuff um, is good. Um, as Peter explained, we're jumping into a new series um, and we really wanted to get into a book of the Bible. Uh, we've done some kind of topical sermons. You know, in the last one that uh, we did, it was about uh, the character traits of God, right, as image bearers. Uh, what does it mean to know who God is and then to reflect that in our lives? And that was wonderful. Um, but at Kingsway, we like to go through books of the Bible, right, just to make sure that we're not taking things out of context. And so we're going through the book of First Timothy, and it's subtitled, The Good Fight of Faith. And today, we're starting off with an introduction, um, but also I'm going to jump into the first handful of verses into the passage. Uh, if you write notes, the title of today's sermon is, Guard Your Doctrine, right? Guard Your Doctrine. If you came into my house and you picked a book off the shelf of my bookshelf, and you told me, I want to know more about this book, or what would I do and what would I say? And what I probably, probably wouldn't do is take the book, open to the first chapter, and go to the first word and start reading, you know, it's word by word by word by word. I mean, that's helpful. That's really the way to deeply know the content of the book. But what I would probably do is I would give you an overview. Right? Before I even open the book, I tell you something about the book. Right? I tell you if it's a fiction book or a non-fiction book or a historical fiction book. Apparently that's a thing I found a few months ago, historical fiction. Is it romance? Is it thriller? Is it sci-fi or fantasy? What timing is it set in? Is it in the past or is it in the future? And is it about a hero's journey? Or is it tips about how to manage your money? Or is it how to live well? Right? What's the book about? I give you an overview and I think that would help you even before you read a word into the book. And so as we begin today, this new book of the Bible, I'm going to begin by giving you a bit of an overview. I'm going to give a bit of context. And what I'm trying to answer as I start this first point is, who wrote this, who was it written to, and why was it written? And this is a lot of stuff you, I can say, like you can say about uh, the context of this book of the Bible. Uh, some commentaries, it's like nearly half of the book is just context before they even start unpacking a verse. Um, but I'm just going to answer these three questions. 
So the first, who wrote it? Now the answer is real simple for us because right there in the first word we get it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. There it is. Who wrote it? Paul. Right, interestingly, there are still people around the world who will debate whether Paul actually wrote it. But we believe, right, because right there, Paul wrote it. And Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. You may know this, but Paul was not actually one of the original 12 apostles. It took me a little bit, you know, as a Christian to figure that out. I didn't really know that for a while. You know, Jesus, when he walked among the earth, he had his 12 disciples. Paul was not one of them, right? It was only until Jesus died, rose from the dead, and the church began that eventually later Paul became a follower of Jesus. In fact, at the start, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was one of the main people at the front head who was uh, trying to condemn and imprison the Christians at that time. And Acts chapter 9 tells the story of how Paul became an apostle of Jesus. And Paul loves to tell this story. It's in Acts 9, it's in Acts 22, it's in Acts 26, and it's found in some of his letters. And the story is that Paul is on the road to Damascus when a blinding light kind of swamps all of them and he, he actually goes blind. And he hears a voice speak out to him and this voice is Jesus. And Jesus asks why he's persecuting him. And through this, Paul encounters Jesus, he's saved by Jesus, and then he's sent by Jesus to be an evangelist, to tell people about Jesus. And that's what Paul means when he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. He's trying to make sure that we know that even though he's not in the Gospels, even though he's not one of the 12 that followed Jesus originally, he still met Jesus. He saw Jesus. He encountered Jesus. He was uniquely called by Jesus on this mission to be an evangelist, a church planter, and to tell people about Christ. So that's who wrote it, Paul. Right? He's maybe, I'd say, the second most influential person to have ever lived. Right? And if you're not a Christian, you disagree, but you've got Jesus and Paul. Second, who was this written to? And again, this is kind of easy. We'll go to the second verse. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. On one hand, this was addressed to Timothy. Now, I want to say it's also to something else. But first, it's addressed to Timothy. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Timothy. Timothy was born uh, the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And we actually know the name of his mother. It's Eunice. And his grandmother is Lois, it says it in the Bible. And that kind of put him in an interesting situation. Uh, Because he was born of a Greek father, he was potentially rejected uh, or considered illegitimate by the Jewish people. Right? Oh, you're not a real Jew, right? You can't tell us about God. But it did put him in a great situation to be able to reach out to the non-Jewish people, right? What the Bible calls the Gentiles. He was a non-Jew telling non-Jews about Jesus, right? And he does that effectively with with Apostle Paul. Now, Timothy uh, was probably saved uh, sometime uh, in Paul's first missionary journey. Maybe even um, by hearing the Apostle Paul preach. Or someone who heard Paul preach went and told Timothy about Jesus. 
And so by the time the Apostle Paul is going to begin his second missionary journey, it's like a tour where he goes around and he tells people about Jesus and plants churches. In Acts 16, Paul appoints Timothy to be a part of his team. Now, Timothy was young then. He would have been in his late teens, maybe early 20s. But he must have been recognized as being a very mature Christian, devoted, passionate, convicted. So the Apostle Paul, when he's about to gather his, um, you know, his avengers, his, assemble his team, he's like, you, Timothy, I want you to be a part of the team. Right? That's the kind of guy Timothy is, even at a young age. And he's so committed to the mission of telling people about Jesus that we find in Acts 16 that he's willing to be circumcised in order to be a part of this mission. And again, this is because his father was Greek. The Jews might have thought, oh, you're not a real Jew. And so in order to remove any stumbling blocks, Timothy, as a pretty grown adult, was willing to undergo circumcision so the Jewish people might listen to him. Right? Talk about a commitment to Christ and a willingness to preach the gospel. I don't know about you. Some of you will be like, no, oh, no, no, I'm done. I was going to go tell people about Jesus, but not if that's the cost. But he was committed. And from that point on, Timothy becomes Paul, one of Paul's closest companions. One of the most dependable and trusted people that Paul had in his life. On some of the most dangerous tasks and journeys, Paul would actually send Timothy. Right, on the most dangerous journeys, right? Not because he didn't like him. Right? You go over there. It's because he trusted him. And we see this, the closeness in the way that Paul talks about Timothy. He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. We find this kind of phrase elsewhere as well when Paul talks about Timothy. Paul, uh, as far as we know, was never married, never had children. But he saw himself as a spiritual father to Timothy. He saw Timothy like he was his own son. Right? And he mentored him and invested in him. There was arguably no one closer to the Apostle Paul than Timothy. Right? Closer in terms of knowing him, uh, being there in the midst of all the struggles, being there as he planted churches, right? to be uh, invested into and discipled into. No one else was closer than Timothy. Maybe Luke. Right? But Luke was always there watching and writing. He wrote the book of Acts. But Timothy was always there. And so in 10 of... Uh, the Apostle Paul's letters, the name Timothy appears. Ten out of 13. And out of those ten, two of them are written to Timothy. First Timothy and Second Timothy. And we're looking at First Timothy. And lastly, Timothy, at this point in time, was most likely a pastoring the church in Ephesus. Right? That's the kind of hint that we get in verse 3. And so he is pastoring, and Paul is writing this letter as a wiser Christian and pastor and church planter to his protege about how he should pastor this church in Ephesus. Now, so on the one hand, Paul is writing to Timothy, but on the other hand, he's also writing it to the church. It's addressed to Timothy, but this letter is also intended for the church. What does that mean? I don't know if you've ever done this. You send a message in a group chat, but you're talking to one person in the group chat. Have you ever done that? Sometimes I do that, like after an event, I'd be like, oh, Daniel, 
great job, you know. And I, and I send it in the group chat. I'm like, should I send it individually? No, I'll send it in the group chat. I'm addressing it to you know, so, someone, but I want other people to hear. Right? And there's different reasons why you might want other people to hear. You, want, you might want them to hear and also jump on board and thank them. You might want to honor the person in a public place. And so that's a little bit different. And so part of what Paul is doing here is that. As he writes to Timothy, he knows that the church is going to hear it, but by writing to Timothy, he's kind of um, uplifting his authority in the midst of the church. Right? So that Timothy might have more authority as he then implements the things that Paul tells him to do. And so how do we know this? And there's a few reasons why I'm just going to kind of talk about one. If you go back to verse 1, when Paul introduced himself, he said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's a very formal way of introducing yourself to someone who knows you the best. Right? Timothy knows Paul. He knows he's an apostle of Christ. He doesn't have to talk about that. And then in chapter 2, Paul actually defends himself. He says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And he says in brackets, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And he doesn't need to tell Timothy he's not lying. Timothy knows he's an apostle. Timothy knows that Paul was sent by Jesus. He's so committed to this, remember, he's willing to sacrifice stuff. He doesn't need to convince Timothy. But there were many in the church who doubted Paul's authority, doubted whether he truly was an apostle because he wasn't one of the 12. And we find this in the book of Galatians. We find this in 2 Corinthians. Paul says very similar things. As he writes to the church, he defends his authority. Right? And so when he does this, it's a hint that he knew that not only Timothy, but the church would hear. And so it's addressed to Timothy, but also addressed to the church, and therefore it's addressed to us. Paul wrote this letter that we, the church, might listen and that we might hear and obey. And so why was it written? Paul wrote it to Timothy and to the church, but why? There's a lot of things we're going to cover in this book, but I think it's neatly summarized in chapter 3. And Paul kind of explains why he writes it. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. You may know what? How one ought to behave in the household of God. How one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Why is Paul writing this letter? is so that the church knows how to behave. How the church would know how to conduct itself, order itself, that the church might know what's a good thing or a bad thing, how we might be a holy church, a church that pleases God. What does it look like to be a good and godly church? That we might know how we behave like that. And so as Paul writes to Timothy, from one church planter and pastor to a younger protege, the wise mentor to his young disciple, Paul is teaching him, this is what you should do with your church. Right? I've, got a, I've got a mentor and I've got people that try to coach me as I plant it and I sit under you know, their wisdom and I listen. And that's kind of what's happening. As Timothy, Timothy listens to Paul, Paul is telling him how the church should run, how the church should behave. And so he's going to talk about things like uh, leadership and elders and who should be in places of uh, leadership. He's going to touch on some sensitive topics like the role of women in the church 
And that should be interesting. He's going to talk about how we should relate with one another in the context of this gathered body. All of these things are very important for us so that we might be a church that honors and pleases God. These things are worth fighting for. This is the fight for the good fight of faith. And Paul's writing these things because the church in Ephesus that Timothy is pastoring, we're not doing these things. So that's the context. Kind of know a little bit about what's going on. Or you may forget this as we go along. But hopefully, like, as we keep coming back to this book, you'll understand a little bit about you know, the overall idea. Now, let's go a little bit kind of specific now. We're going to open up, let's say, the book that you picked off the book, bookshelf. And we're going to start reading from chapter 1 and the first word. And what we're going to find straight away in verse 3 is a command. This is what Paul commands. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, right? So this is why we believe Timothy was still in Ephesus, pastoring the church there. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, I want to point out what Paul doesn't say. What Paul doesn't say is a word of thanksgiving. And that's what Paul normally does in his letters. After he introduces himself and does this kind of uh, introduction, he then thanks God for the work he's doing. Or I thank God for you. And he, he says thank you for something, but he's not thankful here. Maybe because the situation is really bad. What Paul doesn't also talk about is behavior. Again, the purpose of this letter is that the church would know how to behave. That we might know what to do. Paul doesn't begin by talking about what we should do. He begins by talking about what we should know. Paul begins by talking about what we believe because what we believe affects how we behave. Now, what we believe is really important because it's from there that our behavior will emerge. And so this letter is all about behavior. He's going to talk about how we behave in the church, but he begins by talking about what we believe because that is first and foremost. What we believe affects how we behave. What you know leads to what you do. Your doctrine leads to your doing. Paul structures some of his other letters in this way, right? If you look at the book of Romans, you can kind of cut it in half and be like, chapter 1 to 11 is believe. If you look at the book of Romans, you flick through it, it's just, he's just teaching, it's knowledge. And then when he hits chapter 12, it's like he pivots and then he talks about what you should do, behavior. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's like he lays down a foundation of knowledge and truth and doctrine and from there, That is how we act. Without that foundation of knowledge, if you're just acting, you won't know what to do or how to live or whether what you're doing is right or wrong. Your knowledge and your doctrine must shape your behavior. It's the same in the book of Ephesians. Cut it in half. Chapter 1, 2, 3, believe these things. Chapter 4, 5, 6, behave in this way. And even in this letter, if you look at that uh, verse in chapter 3, When he talks about his purpose, verse 15, he says that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And then he says, the household of God is a church of the living God, and it is a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
This is about the church behaving. But let me remind you, for the church to behave, I want to remind you what the church is. What the church is, is what it believes. The church believes the truth. It is a pillar and a foundation of truth. Let me remind you that that is foundational. That comes first. That is always important to the Christian. You know, I say this because sometimes we feel like knowledge um, is maybe unimportant or uh, I don't need to know theology. I don't need to study. You know, there's churches that study the Bible and we're not one of those. We're going to keep it simple. I love Jesus and that's all. That's simple. Let's keep it simple. We want to love Jesus. But the reality is, if, if a person says, well, I just want to keep it simple. I want to love Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? The Jesus that you love, who is he? And your answer to that is your theology. That's your doctrine. Right? Now, he's uh, the son of God. That's your doctrine. That's, that's what you believe, right? We all have a doctrine, now, whether we know it or not. We all have theology, whether we know it or not. We're either investing into it or we're not. It either has holes or we filled up the hole with what the God, Word of God says. It's either coming from the truth or we're going to get our theology from somewhere else. We all have beliefs. And those beliefs are affecting our behavior. And so it's important that we invest into what we believe. Like if I told you today, um, getting drunk is a sin. Like, like if, you, if you did not know that, if you didn't believe that getting drunk was a sin, it would affect how you behave, right? If you believed getting drunk is a sin, it should affect how you behave. Right? It's just that simple. What we believe matters. What you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about eternity, what you believe about the root problem in this world, what you believe about identity and who you are, what you believe about what God wants you to do and how to live, what you believe about relationships and how it is framed in the purposes of God, all those beliefs lead to behavior. And so it makes sense that as Paul writes to Timothy about the behavior of the church, he begins by talking about belief. Let me remind you, it is so important to believe the right things. And at the time, there were false teachers in the church of Ephesus teaching the wrong beliefs, teaching the wrong doctrine. And Paul is saying we need to stop that. Because if we let that continue, it's not just about some people believing the wrong things. They're going to be living the wrong way. You know, I talked about this in the God is Truthful sermon right a few weeks back. The battle that's being waged in the world and in people's souls is a battle for truth. If people will hear and heed the truth of God, then they might be saved and they might go to eternity. The problem is people don't hear the truth. They hear the truth of the world, right, which the Bible says is lies. Right, the truth of where you find joy and freedom and life to the full. And the world says it's this way and it's these things. And people follow that quote-unquote truth and that leads to death. And in the midst of this, these lies, the Word of God is meant to pierce through it that we might know truth. And God says life is this way. Joy is this way. Freedom is this way. And it's through Christ. And if the world would hear it and heed it, 
it would be saved. This is what you believe. It has to begin with knowledge. And the church's role in the midst of this, as Paul said, is that we are the pillar and buttress of truth. One of the roles of the church, this church is to guard the truth, to protect the truth, to ensure that we approach the Bible correctly, that we believe the right things, that we don't follow heresy, that we don't bend our truth, that we don't follow the world, that we don't get it mistaken. It's so important that we know the Bible well, that we study it. Right, that we reading books and articles in growth groups do more than just hang out, but talk about the scriptures and deepen our knowledge so that we might love Jesus more, so that we might obey him more, right? Not for knowledge's sake alone, but that it might lead to more things. But the church fights and protects doctrine. To be a good church, we must have good doctrine. It's so important. And so at Kingsway, we, we love the Bible. We want to deepen our knowledge of the Bible. We want to go back to the Bible. Sometimes, you know, for me, I'm like, just love Jesus, and that's good. Keep it simple. But also, deepen your interaction with God's Word. And for you as an individual, I want to encourage you to keep deepening your knowledge. Study the Bible, Right? Don't be content with what you know about God as if that's enough for the rest of your life. Or know about the Bible and that's enough for the rest of your life. We should always be, it's like the Bible is a treasure trove of um, jewels and we, we're digging through it and it's hard work and we've got to get on our, our, our knees and dirty our elbows, but then we dig and then we find you know, amazing things in there. That's the joy of studying scripture. But sometimes you wake up and you're like, oh, it's such hard work. Do I need to really read this? And doesn't make sense the first three times I read the passage and, you know, I've got to read other things for help. But when you dig into the Word of God and you find these things about God, about who He is and what He's promised for you and how that affects your life, that is the joy of discovering doctrine. Learn more about God, who He is, that is loving and that is good and that is real and that He exists. You know, sometimes I think our behavior or our lack of behavior is simply the result of a lack of belief. We don't behave well because we don't know well. I mean, we may know information, but do we truly believe the things that we say we know? Do you really believe that God's commands are good? Do you really believe that God's word is ultimate truth above everything else and it trumps all else? Do you believe that God is faithful to his promises? That he will give you all the things that you sacrifice today for the sake of his kingdom. Dig into doctrine because what you believe always affects how you behave. And that's where Paul begins. That's the command. But let me end by the third point, talking about the content of the false teaching. And so in the church, there was false teaching occurring. And Paul is going to talk a little bit about what that false teaching is and what they've been distracted away from. So verse 3. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Oh, so there's a, is there a quote. Okay, no. Go to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, we don't know the exact kind of detail of what the false teaching was. Right? We don't know if they were going around saying, you know, Jesus is not you know, the son of God or, you know, sin is okay. You know, some of these heresies existed at the time. Um, but Paul refers to myths and endless genealogies. Let me break apart what some of this might mean. Uh, myths at that time, that word was synonymous with fable or a far-fetched story. Basically, it means lies, made-up stuff, right? Myths, made-up stuff. And the Christian faith is not made-up stuff. Our belief is not based on something that someone just said, right? It's not like you can believe in the Bible or you can believe in Lord of the Rings and just pick, pick one and we just put our faith in this book that someone made up. That's not what we believe. The Christian faith is very anti-myth. Every time the word myth is used in the Bible, I think it's five times, it's used in a bad way. For example, when Peter talks about it, this is what he says. He says, we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What Paul is saying is, what we're telling you wasn't just something that we made up. The Christian faith is based on history, on evidence of real people in real places. And Peter is saying, and I saw it, and that's what I'm telling you. You know, Christians, we believe that what we're believing about Jesus is, is not some um, story. We believe he was a real person that lived in this world. That he really walked amongst us. That he really said and taught the things that is recorded in the scriptures. That he really did die on a cross in a moment in time. Our faith is not mythical or mythological. It is based on evidence and history. There's reasons why we believe that there's evidence that the scriptures are true, that the disciples were actually real, that Jesus was actually real. And there's more evidence. Um, like we believe Alexander the Great was a real person. But the evidence that we have that he was an actual person is very small. Right? If you look into the actual documents that we have about him. And yet the Bible is being preserved so well, so closely to the original um, moment of events when Jesus actually lived. Right? We have so much um, proof that the scriptures are real and true and the people in it are real and true. Our faith is not myths. Paul also talks about endless genealogies. Now, genealogies are those parts in the Bible where it'd be like, so-and-so had a child, and that child had a child, and that child had a child. You know, you kind of list it. You can find it in the Old Testament and New Testament. And what was probably happening uh, was that the false teachers were going to these kind of parts of the Bible and picking out names that are just mentioned once. Like, you know, so-and-so had a child, and that child had a child. And they pick one name, and they'd be like, oh, let me tell you about that person. And again, this is where the myths come in. They make these stories about that person and who they were and what they did and how they lived. And they teach off that. Again, making up stuff, elaborate stories leading to speculation. 
But at the end of the day, what's resulting is that they're leaving the truth for these stories. They're going to passages and making big things out of small things that are not the main thing. And in the process, people are led to speculation and distraction. Now, I once heard a sermon about the passage in 2 Kings chapter 4, when Elisha, he raises a boy from the dead. And when the boy comes back to life, he sneezes seven times. And the sermon uh, was about, like, it's just this kind of a passing comment. He sneezed seven times. But the sermon was about how each of these sneezes are something that you need to sneeze out of your life. It's just like, let me tell you. And then he just listed these seven things. And these seven things were good. Um, not that they're not found maybe elsewhere in the Bible. But he's like, this is what you need to sneeze out. You need to sneeze out this. And you need to sneeze out that. And he listed these seven things that were simply not in the Bible. I mean, that wasn't even what the passage and the story was about. It was, like, it was just like a passing thing. And there's purpose behind it. But the purpose wasn't that we just make up what those seven things are. And it took me a while to kind of realize, oh, that's not how we should approach the Bible. And these kinds of things were happening in the church. Go to a passage, pull out a name, make up stuff, and distract people from the main point of the passage or the main point of the Bible. And the problem is, as Paul says, it promoted speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. It was leading to distraction. People were majoring on the minors, not majoring on the majors. God has given us a stewardship, it says. God has entrusted us with the truth. Specifically, the gospel truth about Jesus, which is by faith. And the purpose of the church in our behavior, one of the things is to tell people about Jesus. Tell people about sin and salvation. But what was happening were Christians were getting around and they were unpacking these genealogies and getting confused into these conspiracy theories and they were being distracted from the main thing. They were not functioning as a church. They were not proclaiming the gospel. They were not going out to tell people about Jesus. They were focused on the wrong thing. And this is possible and quite probable in every church. Every church can easily be led astray to that which is not most important. To focus on that which is important but secondary and make it the main thing and lose focus on that which we are called to be about. We are meant to be centered on Christ. We are meant to proclaim Christ crucified. The gospel message is what we're about. Pastor Kent Hughes, he talks about this book called The Bible Code. It's about... The book, The Bible Code, it's about this doctor named Dr. Rips. He was a mathematician and he used mathematic formulas in, with computers and he said he decoded the Bible. And he said if you open the Bible in the Hebrew and you um, kind of take certain words or letters in a certain way, you can unpack a secret message from God. It's like a puzzle. He's like... You open it up and you think you know what it is, but if you get the first letter of every sentence, you know, and you circle it and you put those together, you get a different message. And that's the real message, right? And that's what the book was about. Um, 
And the sad part is he went to the Bible, but he missed the main thing. And he focused on something that was so secondary that he eventually lost the true meaning. And this happens in all, like in so many churches, and it's possible for all of us. You know, there are so many things that even us as Christians can get caught up with that aren't the main thing. We chase experiences or supernatural encounters that can easily, if we're not careful, distract us from the scriptures, the truth, doctrine from the gospel. Um, chasing the, the next um, kind of miracle right, by missing out on God. Right? Was Jesus really born on Christmas? Did he really die on Easter? Right? People get caught up in that. The answer is probably no. But that's secondary. What's main thing is that he was born and that he did die and that is worth celebrating. Right, you jump on YouTube, there are so many big rabbit holes that you can fall into. Right, the Illuminati, right, conspiracy theories that oh, the world, and you, know, and you just get lost into these things. Now, for the Christian and the church, it's so important that we keep the main thing. The main thing, it is the gospel message that we proclaim. Let's go back to it. It is the truth of Scripture. Let's go back to it. Doctrine matters because what we believe leads to what, how we behave. And what we believe must be grounded in the Scripture and centered on Jesus Christ. Let me close. Where would you like Kingsway to be in 10 years' time? What would you like Kingsway to look like? What would you like Kingsway to have accomplished in 10 years' time? You know, I'm not a far thinker. I'm not a visionary. And so, you know, sometimes people around me encourage me to think far, and the interim council, they do a great job in like, well, you should think a bit far. And I'm like, oh, yes, yes, that's good. It's helpful for me. Whenever I think far, I don't know about you, when I think about what kind of a church I want us to be in 10 years, I think about stuff like salvation, the size of the church. Maybe we could have planted a church or two in 10 years. Maybe we can hire more people. Maybe we can get our own building. All these great things. They're important things. You know, but I don't, tend to think about, can we be faithful to the Scriptures? In 10 years' time, can we, be, can we have good doctrine? Can we believe the right things? Right? Do you tend to think about that? If I'm honest, I don't. But it's so important. There is a real possibility that in 10 years, Kingsway would have false teaching. You know, we assume that we won't. Of course we, not us. We're so biblical. <laughs> I don't know. We're not, we're not going to go down the road of heresy. Oh, we know what's right and what's wrong. You know, everyone thinks they're right, right? All the cults think they're right. Everyone thinks they're right. We, we think we're going to be okay. Unless there's a concerted effort and we fight for it, there is a real possibility that in 10 years' time, False teaching could have entered the church. That we might interpret the Bible wrong. That we might have, you know, loosened our beliefs to assimilate with the culture of the world is a real possibility. We see it happen in the Bible. Paul is writing to Timothy as he pastors the Ephesian church. Let me tell you about the Ephesian church. 
The Ephesian church was founded, it was planted by no, none other than the Apostle Paul. Right? No better planter right? to, to plant your church, the founding pastor, Apostle Paul. How great is that? That's the Ephesian church. Paul stayed at this church and taught and led this church for three years. For three years, the people in the congregation sat under, possibly, again, the second best preacher in the world, Apostle Paul. He wrote so much of the New Testament. They got to sit under him. Must have had received such good doctrine. And as Apostle Paul leaves, he warns them in Acts chapter 20. He, he gathers the elders of Ephesus and he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He even warns them about false teaching before he leaves. Hey, we're good, but just be careful. False teaching might come about, it might even come about from inside of you. And then he leaves. And now after some time, Paul is writing to Timothy who pastors the church in Ephesus. And false teaching has entered. There are false teachers in the church. They're being led astray, distracted from the main thing. They're chasing myths and genealogies. And, oh, look at this small part of the Bible. And let's make it all about that. And let's sit in a circle and discuss what if and maybe this. And there's such a shambles that the Apostle Paul must begin with no thanksgiving and rebuke them. How quickly do you think they turned from a church that sat under the Apostle Paul's teaching to becoming a church with false teachers? How long do you think that took them? 30 years? 20 years? 10 years? It took them four years. Four years from being a church that pretty sure had good doctrine to being led astray to false teachers and false teaching for years. I don't think any church or any Christian should be so prideful to think that we're going to be fine. We need to study the Word. We need to dig into it and ensure that what we believe is right and know why we believe what we believe so that when the world comes and whispers lies or when heresy comes knocking on the door and when false teachers come from outside or even inside, that we'll be certain that our belief would stay strong, and because of our belief had stood strong, our behavior stays strong as well. You've probably seen it, I've seen it, I've seen churches, their theology or their beliefs change in the span of four years. It happens that quickly. Pastors change, churches change. Pastors' beliefs change, churches change, you know, whatever. It happens. It's important for you as an individual. It's important for us to be a church with good doctrine. It is so important. So let's pray about that. Would you pray with me? Let's close our eyes. I know it might not seem that flashy. Uh, might not feel very applicable. You know, I, I, wanna t I want you to tell me how, how to live my life and how to go to work and I should do it with my money and all this practical stuff. I mean, that's what we feel like we need, but the fact is it's so important that we guard the truth. That we have healthy and good beliefs and that we approach the Bible properly. Would you pray for yourself? Would you pray for this church? 
Holy Spirit, convict me that I might come before your word and that I might, might study it, that I might investigate it, that I might dig deep into it, creating me a hunger to know more about you and know about, know about your son and the spirit and what you have told me. Help me to have that hunger to go back to your scriptures. And as I do, Holy Spirit, illuminate it for me, make it clear to me, help me to understand what I'm reading, help me to understand it properly and rightly, and not be distracted or not go down the wrong path. And help us, church, that we might today and tomorrow for the next 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, at least until uh, for as long as we exist, that we might be grounded on your truth that we might have good, proper doctrine. And no church has it perfect, but as much as possible, God, that we might handle your scriptures well. That we might be, as the Apostle Paul said, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That we might know the truth, guard the truth, protect the truth, so that we might proclaim the truth to a world that does not yet know it. God, help Kingsway to be that kind of church. It sounds boring but it's so important for us if we want to be a good church. We need good doctrine. Can you pray that for yourself and for us as a church? Let's cry out to God. Let's, let's lift up our voices to Him and plead. Let's pray.